0: This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. My name is Eric Hintz, and I'm an historian at the Smithsonian Institution's Lemelson Center for the Study of Invention and Innovation at the National Museum of American History. The title of the article, and it was part of the uh, September 2010 uh, technology report, it's called Creative Financing, the Rise of Cash Prizes for Innovation is a Response to Changing Business Conditions and a Return to a Winning Strategy. Lately, we've seen the emergence or really the re-emergence of an interesting phenomenon where corporations or philanthropists are sponsoring these invention contests and offering large cash prizes to solve pretty specifically defined technological problems. And so by offering these large cash prizes, they're hoping to get a lot of new solutions to tough problems and a lot of new inventions. So, Rather than having an inventor or an entrepreneur recognize some kind of need and develop an idea and try to push it onto the marketplace, these innovation prizes represent an attempt by the marketplace itself to sort of state its needs and pull new innovations from the technical community. So these prizes are kind of a pull rather than a push. And so how it works is you get a corporation or a philanthropist that has some sort of specific problem they'd like to see solved. They define some specific criteria for solving the problem. They publicize the contest, and then they watch the solutions flow in from different inventors, and then they set up a system for refereeing or adjudicating that contest, and then If an inventor or a group of inventors is able to meet the criteria, they'll award the prize. We're seeing a lot of these prizes emerge recently in the last four or five years, but these prizes actually have a surprisingly long history. So if you go back all the way to 1714, the British Parliament and the empire was a naval empire at that time. They were really trying to understand how you could solve the problem of determining your longitude while at sea for the British Navy. So in 1714, the Parliament passed the Longitude Act, and they offered prize money to anybody who could solve this longitude problem. So between 1737 and 1765, about uh, this clockmaker named John Harrison actually earned a series of these awards for developing a marine chronometer. He earned something like 14,000 pounds over 30 years for his innovations in determining longitude. So that goes all the way back to the 1700s. If you fast forward a little bit to the 1800s and cross over to France, the French government sponsored a food preservation prize. Napoleon's army was marching all over Europe, they needed a way to preserve food over long distances and over time, so they established a prize. In 1810, a man named Nicholas Appert claimed 12,000 francs for demonstrating vacuum packing. This is the method we still use today for canned foods. And then if you fast forward even more into the 1900s, the 20th century, in 1919, a New York hotel owner named Raymond Ortig offered $25,000 to the first aviator who could fly nonstop from New York to Paris, and that prize was famously claimed by Charles Lindbergh in 1927. So these prizes have a long history going way back. If you look at kind of the history of these prizes and also the fact that these prizes are kind of reemerging right now in the last few years, it seems like these prizes tend to appear or, or reappear, as it were, when there are really tough problems to solve, but there are sort of lean economic conditions. So if you go back to Orteig, who established the Aviation Prize in 1919, the one that was won by Lindbergh, at that time, the United States was mired in a recession following World War I in the demobilization after that war, and so not a lot of investment was going on in terms of new research and things like that. But the war in Europe had really sort of underscored the need for transatlantic transportation. Even though not many people were investing and it was a down economic time, Orteig recognized the need to sort of spur aviation and turn it into sort of this collection of ragtag barnstormers into a more stable industry. So he wanted to see, can we get someone to fly nonstop across the Atlantic? And so by offering this prize, even though it was not generally a time when people were doing a lot of investment research, he was able to get someone like Lindbergh that would take the chance and hope to win $25,000. And so Lindbergh's innovations of his plane and fuel efficiency and things like that were able to sort of move the industry forward. The same thing is happening today. I mean, it's a down economy and a lot of firms are hesitant to invest in long-range technology projects. They can be expensive. Oftentimes they don't pan out, so firms are really cautious right now. But the more forward-thinking firms that still want to see things happen are willing to put these prizes up to sort of induce the inventive community to come up with new solutions to a host of problems. After the Ortig Prize was awarded in 1927 to Lindbergh, these kinds of prizes tended to go dormant for most of the rest of the 20th century. And It was only in the last five or six years, say 2004, 2005, that we started to see them come back? Why did they decline? Now, I would suggest that the history of these prizes has kind of mirrored long-term changes in the organization of invention generally. So if you go back to the early 20th century and the early 1900s, most inventions were still created by individual inventors. So they were unaffiliated with any kind of corporation. They were sort of inventing under their own shingle, so to speak. But in order to see their inventions made, they would often have to hook up with a corporation. So they would enter into a contract or something like that. And this was good for firms as well because they often had a lot of marketing experience, manufacturing experience, but they needed new ideas. So you had this, in the early 20th century, marketplace for inventions where manufacturers would contract with independent inventors and promise these predefined financial rewards. So, for example, it was common in the early 20th century for an industrial firm to place an advertisement in... Scientific American or Popular Mechanics or something like that and offer $500 to any inventor who can develop an improved method of making a glass bottle or improving the efficiency of steam boilers or anything like this. So these kinds of prizes on a smaller scale were happening all the time in the early 20th century. And so when you get to something like the Orteig Prize, it's just sort of a difference in scale, not in type, of these kind of prizes now. Why did they decline? So... Firms got tired of doing this contracting with the independent inventors. Sometimes inventors can be really quirky, idiosyncratic. Maybe firms weren't willing always to go out into the marketplace to look for their inventions and contract with outside inventors. So starting really around the end of the 1920s or so, we start to see the emergence of the first corporate R&D labs in the United States at places like AT&T and General Electric and DuPont. So instead of hiring out for inventions, they actually brought inventors inside the corporation, put them on staff, pay them a salary, and today we know about all kinds of different R&D labs at Hewlett-Packard and IBM, places that hire hundreds of inventors and scientists on their staff. So again, why did these prizes decline? Once these firms have inventors on their staff, they don't need to go out into the marketplace and create incentives for invention. They don't need to put an ad out in Scientific American. They've already got their inventors on staff. Once you see the emergence of corporate R&D, you also start to see the decline of these kinds of prizes. There's probably three main benefits. First of all, if you look at the financial aspects of these prizes, it's actually a pretty prudent and efficient way to spur new innovations. So let's say you've got an in-house corporate R&D lab or a a government grant or some sort of competitively bid contract. In that case, let's say within a corporate R&D lab, you've got a firm, you're paying your researchers, and they're basically being paid their salaries, and you've got the overhead for the lab and all these expenses, and you enter into a project, and it may or may not pan out. And if it doesn't pan out, then you've sort of spent all that money and time, and you've come away with, with nothing, basically. You didn't get a solution to your problem. Now... With these inducement prizes, the contestants pay their own capital and they develop their solutions and the sponsor only pays for the ideas if they actually work. So it moves the risk of innovation from the firm itself onto the solver community. So for the first reason, it sort of reduces the risk for the firms that are looking for innovations in that sense. And so a second reason why these prizes work is that they tend to really multiply and diversify the kind of talent that's directed at a given problem. So again, let's say you've got a corporate R&D lab and you've got a staff of 25 researchers that are working on different problems for your company. Well, if you look at some of these prizes, they're attracting dozens, hundreds of contestants who are all putting in their own money to solve the problem. So for example, there was a prize called the Ansari X Prize that was trying to spur commercial space travel. It was a $10 million prize, and it was won by Burt Rutan for developing Spaceship One. It was estimated that the different teams spent $100 million in total across all the different teams to develop a commercially viable non-government spaceship, but the prize itself was only $10 million. So $100 million was spent on the problem, but the Prize Foundation only awarded $10 million in prizes. So you sort of have this multiplier effect in terms of the number of people who come into the prize and the amount of research that's actually done in dollars versus what's paid out. So that's the second idea. Now, the third idea is there's sort of a marketing and image boost for the companies and the philanthropists that create these prizes. If you market these prizes properly, a company can get a real boost out of it if someone wins the prize. So, for example, recently the Progressive Insurance, an insurance company, sponsored a prize to spur innovators to develop high fuel efficiency cars that could have a fuel efficiency equivalent of 100 miles per gallon. This brought a lot of attention to progressive insurance. Beyond seeming like a forward-thinking company, they're spurring innovation. Every time someone talks about that prize, they mention the name progressive insurance. So there can be a real marketing benefit to companies and philanthropists as well. The Progressive Auto Insurance Automotive X Prize for fuel efficiency cars, that was just awarded this past September 2010. Some of the others that are out there, there's the X Prize Foundation is a foundation that sort of works with companies and philanthropists to sponsor a lot of these prizes. One that they've got going now is called the Google Lunar X Prize. So Google is putting forward the money they're going to pay $30 million to the first privately funded team that can land a rover on the moon. So that's a prize that's out there right now. Another one that the Prize Foundation is sponsoring is come in the wake of BP's Deepwater Horizon accident. So again, a Google connection, the wife of Google's president, Eric Schmidt, her name is Wendy Schmidt, has put up $1.4 million on what's called the Wendy Schmidt Oil Cleanup. X challenge, And so that's to find new technologies for cleaning up oil spills. Recently, I guess in the last year, Netflix, the movie company, had a contest where they awarded a million dollars to the first team that could achieve a 10% improvement in its movie recommendation algorithm. And so they received tons of entries, something like 33,000 entries from more than 70 countries again, to this point of it's good press for Netflix, they get a real business benefit from a better algorithm, and then they've sort of diversified the talent pool. They've got thousands and thousands of people thinking about this problem, and they only pay when it works a million dollars. Corporations and philanthropists have sort of picked up on this method of spurring innovation. I guess I would say I'd like to see the U.S. government do more of this kind of thing. Usually the government spurs innovation by, again, offering grants through organizations like the National Science Foundation or the National Institutes of Health. And again, you spur this kind of research by offering a grant, but if, if no result comes of it, then the money is spent. We're starting to see the U.S. government do more of these kinds of incentive prizes where they only pay if the result comes in positively. So, for instance, NASA has instituted what they call their centennial challenges. They put them together in 2003 to mark the 100th anniversary of the first powered flight by the Wright brothers in 1903. And they put together these kinds of prizes, like, you know, they would offer a few thousand dollars to someone who could develop the next generation space glove for spacesuits. And so I think the prize there was something like $200,000, which is pretty small potatoes when you think about the sizes of some of the grants or contracts that NASA's normally putting out for its work. So I guess the only thing I would add is I'd like to see the government, beyond what it's already doing, do more of this kind of spurring innovation through these kinds of prizes. This preceding program was brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.